Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoella. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Today, we're so honored to be joined by Senator Maggie Hassan. Uh, Senator, you represent this great state of New Hampshire. You also actually served as the former governor of New Hampshire between 2013 and 2017. And currently, you serve on the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs in the Senate, a committee whose work we're actually going to be focusing on quite a bit today in terms of our conversation. So, Senator, we're so honored to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, certainly in these next couple of weeks are going to be really busy, really fascinating, really hectic. So we're really honored that you chose to spend uh, this next half hour going through these important national security issues with us. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on, uh, both of you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Senator. So let's dive right in and kind of begin the conversation with the world we're living in, that being COVID-19, this global pandemic that we find ourselves in. And in terms of national security, I think COVID-19 was by many not viewed as a significant security issue just 10 months ago, but there are certainly many security implications. Uh, So you are the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Federal Spending Oversight and Emergency Management. So Senator, let's, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, go back to December of 2019 what were the fatal flaws of our government's preparedness for this pandemic that have impeded its response? Well, first of all, um, it's just devastating that more than 200,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, And it's really important for us all to acknowledge that we didn't uh, need to be in this situation of, of losing so many lives. My heart goes out to everyone listening who has lost a loved one or who is recovering and has long-term effects from COVID-19. Certainly, there's going to be a full after-action report once we get through this pandemic. But as you point out, it is possible uh, for us to look back a little bit and understand um, the critical uh, mistakes that were made. Uh, and the failures in some cases of this administration to really mount the kind of response that would have saved significant number of lives and as a result also uh, lessened the economic devastation that we're going through too. We know that as far back as February, the Trump administration understood the deadliness of this virus and then proceeded to downplay its impacts and mislead the American public about it. But even prior to that, the administration took steps that weakened our country's response to the virus, including eliminating the White House unit that was responsible for pandemic preparedness. Year after year, the Trump administration has also proposed budget cuts to critical public health infrastructure that damaged our that would have damaged our response to a potential crisis. And. As we all saw how serious this pandemic was in the early spring, the administration had the opportunity uh, to create and execute a national public health strategy, and they didn't do that. Again, they were downplaying the significance of this. So they could have, for instance, fully invoked the Defense Production Act, which could have helped us address testing and personal protective equipment shortages. Um, That's something I've been calling on them to do, but they 
decided for whatever reason not to. Uh, I also called on the administration to strengthen our medical supply chain and become less dependent on countries like China for critical supplies. Um, so those are some of the things that the administration could have done. They didn't. And as hard as governors all around the country have been trying to manage this crisis, uh, some of them really focusing on the public health um, information and, and science and really doing their best to mitigate the public health and economic consequences, they really have been limited um, and constrained by a lack of a coordinated national strategy from this administration. And that's something that we just will need to keep pushing um, an administration to do. Absolutely. And, you know, while COVID, of course, is a significant issue in our country and the world right now, uh, another crucial issue is cybersecurity. And, and Senator, you've led the bipartisan effort to improve federal local coordination on cyber issues through the Cybersecurity State Coordinator Act of 2020. Uh, first, uh, I think for the benefit of our listeners, what was the motivation behind this legislation? And second, what are your thoughts on implementing a federal cyber coordinator, given the significant increase in cyber attacks from state and non-state actors, whether they be China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, maybe to take steps to uh, achieve a sense of cyber deterrence for the United States? Well, look, it is really clear uh, that China tried to hide the initial outbreak from its own people and the rest of the world. And those early actions certainly contributed to the scale of the global pandemic that we have now. But I also think it's really important to um, recognize that we shouldn't be pulling out of or backing away from the World Health Organization because of China's misconduct. We should be maintaining a strong role in the World Health Organization precisely so that we can hold China accountable. The administration should also reinstate the American public health experts that they withdrew from their posts at the CDC's office in China, because it would be very helpful to have more of our experts on the ground there. And after we get through this pandemic, that's going to be the time to assess what went wrong and what actions we need to take on a global scale to hold countries, whether it's China or another country, accountable uh, when they don't uh, act transparently and share critical information about emerging health threats. Senator, you mentioned this dependence on China, and certainly there is this foreign policy implication of COVID-19. The Trump administration in months and weeks in the past has sought to blame China for the pandemic. And now, while I must make it clear that our domestic response to COVID-19 is independent of the virus, origins. Uh, what is your view on perhaps China's obfuscation? And more broadly, should the U.S. take further action to hold China, quote unquote, accountable as the Trump administration continuously states? Look, it's a great question, because since our country's founding, we have been um, dealing with uh, defending uh, from adversaries who have armies and weapons uh, that they can use to threaten us or attack us. Uh, and those are obvious uh, physical entities and threats uh, that we can all recognize together and address together. But of course, cyber attacks are uh, much more invisible to the average person until, of course, uh, a system you rely on uh, is attacked. And what we've seen all across the country is a really significant increase in cyber attacks, particularly on state and local governments and critical infrastructure, 
um, particularly on healthcare organizations during this pandemic. So just a couple of examples of the kinds of attacks we've seen and how widespread they are uh, come from here in New Hampshire, where a very small school district uh, was uh, subjected to a ransomware attack. Now, the good news was that very small school district happened to have uh, on their staff a cyber expert who um, took a personal interest in cybersecurity and had backed up most of the files being threatened. So they didn't lose too much of their information and they were able to keep operating. Uh, Similarly, one of our county offices that runs, among other things, a nursing home, a jail, and a dispatch uh, was uh, targeted by ransomware. And again, they recognized it early, but they had to operate essentially with a pen and paper system until they could um, shut down their entire system and restart it. Now, those are two instances where uh, there wasn't a lot of damage done. But um, throughout the pandemic, we are seeing uh, these attacks ramp up because um, cyber criminals understand how dependent all of us are on cyber for work, for school, for healthcare. Um, so um, now we're seeing attacks on um, the Hartford School District, for instance, which had to delay its reopening uh, because of a ransomware attack. We know from reports by Interpol, for instance, that there's been a global increase in ransom att- ransomware attempts against hospitals and healthcare organizations. So what I've worked on is trying to make sure that um, all of our um, institutions and localities have the kinds of tools and resources that they need and that they can coordinate with each other and with experts uh, to strengthen their systems. So um, the cyber coordinator bill that I introduced that you referenced would help address cyber threats by um, having the federal government fund a cybersecurity state coordinator position in every state. I've heard from state and local officials that establishing a position like this would really support their efforts to prevent and respond to cybersecurity threats in a timely way. Um, And I was glad that the Senate uh, put that measure into um, our version of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, I've also, I'm, I'm encouraged that the annual defense bill also calls for an independent assessment on the issue that you asked me about whether we need a national cyber director, um, which cyber security experts have called for. And when you think about it, we've got so many different federal agencies and programs, all of whom have their own uh, cyber staff and cyber experts. The purpose of a national cyber director would really be to bring the coordination effort to the White House level and make sure uh, that we are all coordinating and strengthening each other in the process. So uh, those are some of the things that we're working on. We need to continue to work on it, uh, and we need to make sure that um, our adversaries know we're working on it. Certainly. It will be very interesting to watch these actions take place and how uh, this issue and the U.S.'s response and actions towards this issue pans out. Uh, But now let's sort of dig into issues of public safety. So, Senator, one of your priorities in terms of public safety for your state, New Hampshire, and the country overall, of course, is managing the opioid crisis. You notably co-sponsored the Bipartisan Interdict Act which ensures that Customs and Border Patrol has the tools to stop fentanyl and other illicit opioids at the border. Could you tell us a bit more about this legislation and how effective has it been since it was passed? 
Well, thanks for the question. And, you know, obviously we are all focused on the the public health and economic crisis that uh, the pandemic has wrought, and that is our most pressing uh, public health challenge right now. But in the midst of this challenge, we still have a significant public health and safety crisis in the substance misuse epidemic across New Hampshire and all across the country. And actually, what we're learning is that because of the social isolation caused by the pandemic, as well as the much more constrained access that people with substance use disorder have to uh, their treatment providers and to their peer support groups, we are again seeing an uptick in uh, substance misuse in our state and across the country. Um, one of the things that really changed in um, the, the the importance of dealing with this issue, uh, at least in New Hampshire and I think in other states, really occurred when um, drug dealers and cartels started um, producing fentanyl. And as you and your listeners, I am sure know, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is far more deadly than the opioids uh, that people had been using, like heroin uh, or uh, prescription drugs. And when I became governor in 2013 is when we really began to see an uptick in the use and and uh, sale of fentanyl. So combating fentanyl trafficking has become one of my um, priorities in Congress. We all know we have to do more um, on the demand side of this issue. We have to get more people treatment for substance use disorder to be sure, but we also have to crack down on suppliers. And one of the things that um, became very troubling and very obvious uh, to those of us in Congress was that fentanyl is relatively easy to make and a very, very small amount of fentanyl is very lethal. So it was easy for um, producers in other countries to make fentanyl and then just mail it into the United States or bring it across the border in very small, hard to detect quantities. So I've traveled as part of a congressional delegation to China where they've had a huge issue with fentanyl production and really pressured the Chinese government uh, to list fentanyl as a controlled substance substance and crack down on its uh, illegal production. Uh, they've made some progress on that. They have a lot more work to do. Uh, I've also traveled as part of a congressional delegation uh, to Mexico to talk with the Mexican government because we're seeing an increase in production of fentanyl there. And all of that leads us to the, the need to give our Customs and Border Patrol officers uh, more tools to detect fentanyl. So the Interdict Act that you mentioned was really about making sure that we have the best technology to safely detect small amounts of fentanyl uh, as it's being trafficked across the border. Um, that's been signed into law back, I think, in 2018. And um, Customs and Border Patrol tell us they're making progress, but they've still got work to do uh, to purchase this equipment, uh, get it up and running, and put it to use on the border. Uh, but I'm also focusing on new technology, too. So um, there's a bipartisan group of us who have introduced legislation that would uh, ensure that the chemical screening devices that uh, can detect and identify these narcotics can do it at even when there's a really um, low purity so that you really can detect even the tiniest bits of fentanyl. Uh, so um, those are some of the things we're working on. Again, we also know that we have to continue to address the demand side and 
focus on strengthening prevention, treatment, and recovery services too. Another priority of yours is supporting local law enforcement. So in recent months, we've seen this public debate emerging around the funding of law enforcement agencies and so on. Uh, Given your work with police departments, what are, in your views, some of the biggest challenges facing law enforcement, and how does federal funding fit into this picture? And what has this federal funding gone towards providing to law enforcement agencies? Well, let's start with um, a couple of things. First of all, I don't support defunding police departments. Um, And I just want to take a step back and acknowledge uh, that law enforcement officers put their lives on the line every day, um, and including in this COVID-19 pandemic, where they have been responding to calls, helping people in emergencies, um, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, doing that without the appropriate personal protective equipment, uh, really putting themselves on the line as they do in so many other ways. So I want to make sure that we acknowledge that. Um, I know that law enforcement officers want to see action at the local, state, and federal levels to address the painful history and reality of racial injustice in this country. Um, And certainly following George Floyd's murder, it's been really powerful to see tens of thousands of Americans speaking up about the need to address systemic racism, including in our criminal justice system. Um, I'll continue to urge my colleagues uh, on the Republican side of the aisle to come together with us and put together really meaningful reforms, um, particularly that address law enforcement behavior, everything from barring knee holds and choke holds and requiring greater accountability and transparency for police misconduct, but also acknowledging that we've been asking law enforcement to um, address issues that go well beyond what their traditional responsibilities or their standard tasks have been. We've been asking them, for instance, to respond to um, mental health crises and emergencies, for instance. Um, So we know that in addition to investing um, and funding things like racial bias training in police departments, uh, funding body cameras, Uh, making sure that there's an accountability system for um, bad police officers. We also have to invest more in schools, in healthcare, in housing, and other priorities, particularly to address uh, the longstanding disparities that we've seen uh, that affect communities of color. Um, You asked a little bit about what federal funding does. It really can go uh, for critical training and critical equipment, among other things. It can also encourage local law enforcement to adopt um, certain standards and transparency measures. So those are some of the things that federal funding can do. Uh, There's a real practical impact here if we want our local um, and state police departments, for instance, to um, engage in more training and buy uh, better equipment, uh, things that will help them de-escalate confrontations Uh, and become more aware of racial bias and systemic racism, uh, you really need money uh, both to provide the training, but also to provide the coverage uh, so that communities still have police services while other uh, police officers are getting trained, for example. So there's a lot of reasons that we need to invest here. And I'm going to continue to work in particular to make sure that we focus on the disparities in other areas of our society, too. Uh, You know, when you look, for instance, at issues of maternal health, 
the racial disparities um, in terms of maternal health outcomes are just outrageous. And so we, we have to see this as the holistic issue that it is. Absolutely. I mean, you've certainly outlined the case as to why this is such a critical issue. And so I look forward to seeing um, your efforts as well as the other efforts by members of, of Congress. Um, and as Andre mentioned at the top, Senator, you are a member of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, which is the principal oversight body within the U.S. Senate. Uh, we've recently seen DHS deploy agents to Portland and other U.S. cities to crack down on civil unrest. Uh, there's significant controversy surrounding such use of federal resources. Now, in your oversight role, uh, in the role of the committee, how can the Senate provide a check against the potential overreach or misuse of federal resources by the uh, current administration? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was certainly concerned, as I think all Americans were, when we saw what was happening in Portland, um, and concerned that the administration's actions there seemed to make matters worse instead of de-escalating the conflict. So earlier this year, we had acting uh, Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf uh, in front of us uh, to discuss this very issue. And during my questioning, I asked him to provide materials about the kind of de-escalation training uh, that um, uh, Homeland Security officers um, go through. Uh, we still haven't gotten that information back. Um, I also wanted an after-action report. What happened in Portland? What did the department learn from what happened in Portland? How would they do things differently in the future? Uh, you know, their their concern, as expressed to us in this hearing, was that uh, federal property was being threatened, and the statute is clear that they must uh, protect federal pol property. They, Chad Wolf was saying to us, it wasn't optional. Uh, but what I now am concerned about is that um, I still don't have responses to those questions from the Department of Homeland Security. And that really does speak to the bigger issue. In order for Congress to exercise its oversight, you have to have members of the executive branch who respect Congress as a separate and equal branch of government and understand that they have a responsibility um, and are accountable to Congress. And we need our colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, to assert their role as well and insist um, that the executive branch respond to us so we can conduct the kind of oversight that has been so important in our country's history, so important in keeping um, the balance of power uh, appropriate. And in cases of things like what we saw in Portland, making sure uh, that the federal government doesn't overreach. Senator, certainly we have our general presidential coming up on November 3rd in just a few weeks. And uh, it's obviously been very highly contentious. But there are also many uh, consequential congressional elections as well that are occurring at the same time. Uh, so many Americans are concerned about the president's comments on the transition of power and the recognition of election results were uh, the vice president Biden to win. Uh, do you share any concerns about these uh, about this transition of power and the recognition of election results? And if so, how can our democratic institutions ensure that regardless of who is elected in November, the transition or continuation of power will be peaceful. So I am outraged and concerned by the president's refusal to promise a peaceful transition of power if he loses the election. Um, his refusal here is a dangerous threat to our country and our constitution. Uh, and it's really important to emphasize that um, 
even during wartime, we have had elections and we have had transitions of power and candidates always pledge uh, to engage in a peaceful transition of power. So um, I want to reiterate and emphasize my concern. I also want to let people know that I am confident that our democracy is stronger than any one president and that there is going to be a peaceful transition of power. Um, People need to think this through, but um, no matter what a president does, he can't prohibit the chief justice of the United States from swearing in the next duly elected president. Um, And at the point in time that a new president is sworn in, uh, the allegiance uh, of of all of the entities that protect the presidency uh, will, of course, transfer to that newly sworn in president. But it is also really important that every person who has sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that includes each and every one of my fellow senators, continue to uphold democratic institutions. They have to condemn the president's remarks, and they have to recommit to ensuring a peaceful transfer of power and letting their constituents know that they're committed to doing that. I think that will go a long way uh, towards reassuring the American public and recommitting ourselves to the norms and practices that have kept our country so strong since its inception. Well, uh, on that note, Senator, thank you very much for such a fantastic conversation. I know our Listeners will appreciate your insights uh, and your comments. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. I really, really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for covering these topics. Be safe and be well, everybody. Thank you very much, Senator. It was a pleasure to have you. Be well as well. Thank you. Take care. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast.